welcome back to Behind Startup Lines with me, your host, Phil Guest. Joining me today is Luke Loveridge, CEO and co-founder of PropFlow. His venture is revolutionizing energy-efficient property retrofits while simplifying portfolio management for mortgage lenders and estate agents. Luke is a strong advocate of energy independence. Today, we delve into his prior venture, Homelink, a public sector-focused company that was eventually snapped up by the market leader in home safety. We tackle the complexities of public sector sales and Luke's unique challenges in creating a software-centric business that initially had to deliver hardware too. We'll also touch on navigating competitive waters, especially when launching disruptive solutions and how he strategically allied with competitors, one partnership even leading to Homelink's acquisition. We also explore the emotional journey of being a founder and discuss the highs, lows, and everything in between. As always, our conversations could have gone on for hours, but Luke offers a wealth of actionable advice for any founder looking to operate efficiently without losing their sanity. So without further ado, let's dive right into this episode and go behind startup lines with Luke. Um, Luke, great to have you here. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to learning about your journey as an entrepreneur, which I think is a really interesting one because you come from a background that I don't have a lot of experience in, and that's operating within the public sector. Um, But you've not only been successful in that sector, you've also now starting to transition into the private sector. So I thought today we could just unpack a bit about your background journey, um, how you did that, what you've learned along the way. Um, and what advice you could give other founders who are thinking about following a, a similar path. So welcome to Behind Startup Lines. Uh, please, why don't you introduce yourself and we'll get the conversation going. Thanks, Phil. really appreciate the the invite. And I, firstly, I, I love the, the concept of this podcast as well, Behind um, Startup Lines. Um, my background uh, has been sort of a military one to start with as well. So my dad was... Uh, one of the youngest of seven brothers, and they were all in the military. So uh, the guards, Coldstreams, Grenadiers, uh, paratrooper, artillery, Navy, Air Force. Um, so it, I, it definitely clicks, this this concept of behind startup lines, the military uh, operating in small groups, sort of elite groups to, to win customers. And yeah, so th- again, thanks for um, inviting me on. Um, just in terms of my background, so... Uh, I actually, best part of a decade was spent in the public sector. So I started off on a, a graduate training scheme, which was which was great. It gave me quite a broad experience of the public sector. Um, I ended up going into a lot of change, transformation, and then onto sort of innovation uh, teams, particularly because at the time, the public sector was getting cut quite significantly, and particularly local government, I think it was 28% cuts in, in, in real terms. So they couldn't operate business as usual anymore. So they had to transform and think differently how they deliver services. And for me, that was quite exciting to not just about salami slicing services, but actually creating something new where you could deliver deliver more for less. Um, so, you know, I sort of floated to the top of all these like quite innovative forward thinking teams for for, for local government anyway. <laughs> um, and what that sort of led me on to actually a fellowship in the US. So uh, I ended up t- 
traveling the US on something called the Winston Churchill Traveling Fellowship, uh, looking at how they were working as cities, so chief technology officers in Chicago and um, you, you know, sort of chief information officers in, in San Francisco and how they were working with private companies and community groups and citizens to tackle uh, challenges in new ways. Um, so whether it was you know, communities adopting certain civic infrastructure to, uh, you know, so like for example, in Hawaii, so um, batteries usually went missing from um, uh, tsunami sirens, for example. So how can you get the communities to, uh, you know, keep, keep that up to date and how can you facilitate that? A big part of it was around sort of open data um, and then getting in particularly tech tech guys from like Google, Amazon to, to work on these. And I thought that was really exciting. Um, so I was working in London, then I went back to Bristol where I was originally from. And yeah, so I ended up attracting about 30, 40 million pounds worth of R&D and infrastructure projects um, from autonomous vehicles all the way to, and particularly smart home and smart grid. Right. Um, and while I was there, I was slightly frustrated. It was a long term, so it was hard to get quick wins sometimes. So yeah. like five year projects, you know, multiple, you know, working with corporates like NEC, GE, um, startups, small businesses, academics, public sector. It was complex. Um, it was really interesting ideas, but it was sometimes you know, quite slow. And I thought I could make a real impact outside. Um, so I got together with one of our uh, a research engineer from one of our um, research partners, so Toshiba Research Labs. And we created a company called Homelink. So that company essentially saw an issue with uh, particularly social housing where they were experimenting with uh, smart home technology. So, for example, how could they make their homes more energy efficient? How can they uh, implement telecare or telehealth services? Um, how can they do predictive maintenance? Those sorts of things. But they were approaching it in a very siloed fashion. So they would get sort of one pilot with one company with one platform, uh, one type of hardware, and it wouldn't integrate to you know the, the telecare system or the, the then the maintenance system or the boilers. And in particularly sort of social housing, there's sort of like the top 15. I think it's about they manage about 50 about a million homes between them. So there's quite a lot of scale there. Um, so yeah, I launched this company called called Homelink with with a co-founder. Expanded to a couple of other co-founders actually. Um, and what we were sort of aiming at was how do we make it easier for social landlords in particular, but I also was thinking of more generally landlords, so pr private sector landlords as well. Um, how can we make it easier for them to adopt this technology and get most value out of it? Um, so essentially we built a, a data platform to integrate those devices agnostically. And when I say devices, I mean, it could be, it could be the boiler, it could be you know, thermostats, all of this stuff, which is you know, quite common in sort of, sort of a private home. But mm -hmm. when you scale it across multiple, uh, you know, tens of thousands of properties, it becomes a bit more complex. Or if you've got different types of boilers, um, you know, you need sort of one platform for that. Um, and, but the sort of main strategic piece was around the insights we created off the data that was gathered. So, you know, we, I think we were pretty much the market leader. It didn't feel like it at, mm -hmm. at the time. Um, you never feel like you've done quite enough. But actually, looking back, we were the market leader in terms of real-time thermal energy efficiency, predictive maintenance, indoor air quality. 
which are then over COVID, sort of when people spend more time indoors, um, really started to sort of you know come to the fore. Uh, and yeah, we had a whole suite of uh, AI-based insights, and uh, we ended up getting acquired um, by a, a large manufacturer who had about a 90% market share in our particular sector. Uh, and they had the manufacturing capability, which was, I wouldn't say a weakness, but that's it's a lot of the heavy lifting is around the devices. Right. Um, they had the, the market share and the distribution, the reputation. And we had the insights, the software, and we were coming at it more from a strategic level. So we were talking to you know, the boards and sort of the management teams, whereas the, the manufacturers were coming in it from sort of the, the director of repairs or head of repairs or fire safety, for example. Um, so we were opening up a, a lot, a lot, you know, a, a, quite a big market for them uh, and to, to cross sell into other things. So was this a project that you were looking at while you were still working in the public sector when you're working for one of these local authorities? Did you have this issue and you thought, I can solve this through software? Or was it something that you must have been dealing with lots of different problems like that? Um, why did you zero in on this one particularly? Mm-hmm. It's because I felt it also. So I rented out a property. You know, I was a massive landlord. I just moved to uh, um, from Cardiff to Bristol, mm-hmm. and uh, we just rented out our, our property in Cardiff. And I, you know, I, I wanted some of this technology. Yeah. So in, in my property, and it, there was nothing there for a landlord. If you're an individual, you know, you could get a Hive or Nest. Yes. But for, from a landlord perspective, you, you know, there was nothing there. So. And, and the public sector was, you know, social housing, Bristol was also um, coming across this challenge as well. And I thought, well, I'm feeling this. I can sort of really empathise from a landlord perspective. And I'm in the private private sector, so private um, and And there's a, so I thought, actually, this could be quite a large issue or opportunity to um, sort of crack into. So that's, and again, when I, so when I exited that business, I started my new business. Propflow was around decarbonizing, um, you know, properties and how how can help people to make more sustainable decisions. Um, that was again. I bought a new place and I found it hard. There's just loads of paperwork and it was a bit of a nightmare. And then when it came to retrofitting, um, you know, it wasn't as simple as I I thought it would be. So again, I think you need to come at it from a, you know, you need to feel the pain yourself. So whether yeah. you're working in in the organisation and you felt it whether you work um, you know, consulting uh, to help those people, I think you need to have some sort of idea around the pain that they're going through. Um, otherwise, it's, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. So how did you validate the idea? So you were living it within one local authority, but did you go and talk to others? Did you go out there and talk, okay, this could be something. You, you identified a very big market to address with millions of homes. Yeah. What did you do? To really make sure it was a validated idea. Well, that, that's so interestingly. I, you know, I, I came up with the idea um, a few years before I actually quit and then started the business. And at that point, you know, I, I'm having conversations with other local authorities, even in international. So we were working with cities in Florence and San Sebastian, and they were all working on the on the same problem. Um, so I was able to sort of basically meet these decision makers and understand their their pain points um but when i when we actually you know i, I quit and started the business it's about yeah talking to as many people as possible and going where customers are so there was a number of like innovation networks where you know director of repairs and ceos attend 
Um, there's a number of conferences where you can pitch the well, firstly, listen to them talking yes. about their issues. Uh, and then later on, as you've you formed up the, you know, formed the company, got the website, got, you know, uh, the concept together, then starting to pitch that and get feedback. So it is iterative. Obviously, you need some idea um, to start with. Um, what I would say, though, is what's the famous for? I think it might be wrongly attributed to Ford, but you know, if you ask people what they want, they would ask for faster horses, right? Yes, so yes. part of it is um, shaping the market as well. So if, you need to be sort of brave to some extent to say, this is what we think your the solution to your problems are. And then, you know, at some point you need to work on it and sort of shape the market and, and you know, explain why you need that. Um, but ultimately, you do need to take the signal from the market as well. So if it's complete dud and, you know, then you need to, like, evolve and adapt that. Um, but you need to have something in the sand. You know, you need to put your your, your line in the sand. Um, otherwise, you'll just be constantly flipping and flopping between because different customers will need different, slightly yes. different things. So you'll never get to a core idea. Um, you need something. And then as long as you're confident in that and you feel like you've got enough feedback from enough users that validate that, there might be some users, well, I want this or it's not quite right for me. And at that point, you might just say, well, well, we're not right for you then. <laughs> you're yes. Sorry, then. And then you, yeah. you, you focus down on the customers where it, it is right for them. Um, so, yeah, and, and obviously pilots uh, with working with, uh, public sector uh, institutions or any large organization actually that's what I found you know now working with mortgage lenders and estate agents um, you know they're quite risk averse particularly yes. to anything new and with uh, you know, social housing we were essentially I think the issue we found was we were selling almost like the Windows operating system to companies which haven't got computers yet that, that's right. sort of the equivalent so then we had to start selling the computers why do you need computers so it was almost we had to do the business case for getting a computer and then oh you, you got the computer now here's the operating system you'll need to to work it most effectively um so we're almost too innovative <laughs> this is the devices is it this is what you're putting in there for testing air quality and what have you they didn't exist or they yeah. didn't know where to source those or um, and yeah, you had to you had to build those. I mean, how did you yeah. fill that gap? You said you weren't a manufacturer. Yeah. So initially, we felt that the the communications out of the home was a, quite problematic. So you, you think nowadays, you know, sort of four um, G, two G, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, Starlink, you know, all, all of those those uh, communications technologies. But it is quite tough because you have to think of like. Um, you know, uh, battery life of these devices, you know, do you plug them in? But then what if, you know, someone doesn't pay their electricity bill or turns it off? And like, particularly you're, you're a landlord, you need that operating constantly. Yes. Um, so it's actually it's more difficult than what you think. So one of my co-founders worked in telecommunications, um, particularly for the military. So essentially, whenever I found a gap where there was a massive problem, which were, there wasn't skills in, in, in the team, I just, I, we had four co-founders, including myself. Right. One was a research engineer around um, smart homes. One was a telecommunications engineer, ex-military. And one was a, a startup guy and also an ex-engineer. So we're going heavy on the sort of IP, you know, machine learning, but also we needed something knowledgeable around deployment. Um, so, yeah, we had to um, integrate different devices and um, from different manufacturers so that was a challenge. 
um, but not much as, as much as challenge as the connectivity. So what we did to solve that issue was we started creating our own sort of home, like physical home hub. Um, and again, we looked at different options, you know, could we just source a cheap one from China? Um, you know, do we partner with one and just sort of in, in, integrate, you know, our sort of software onto that? Uh, we ended up for pilots just almost building what prototypes ourselves and sort of rolling out that way. Um, ultimately, we changed to a more wider area network where it was just one gateway instead of a home hub um, based on, yeah, I don't want to get too, into too much jargon, but something called LoRaWAN. So it was almost like low powered radio right. where you could just deploy one uh, gateway over like kilometers, um, which was much more effective. Um, so we had to sort of have this sort of end-to-end solution right. where we were helping ev- the ho- all the barriers, you know, making it really easy for them to then purchase the software and the platform, which was the scalable bit. Right. Um, and it was tough. And actually partnering with and you know our eventual acquirer meant that we they did a lot of the heavy. They already did a lot of the heavy lifting. They had a hub that went into individual homes. They had a, an amazing manufacturing base in in Ireland, which had a really great reputation in terms of quality. Um, so that I think that was the pain point that we faced scaling that we just had to take on the chin. And then when we were acquired, you know, we could then just concentrate on the insights and the software. They had the the hardware sorted, basically. So um, how did they react in the early days, that, that market leading player, when you emerge on the scene and start nibbling around at the edges? I mean, was it all you know, loveness and, and, you know, happy times? Yeah. Or were they a bit kind of pissed off that you were encroaching on their territory? Yeah, it's it's interesting. That is, a, that's a really interesting question, actually. So um, not just that manufacturer, so there's the manufacturers, but there's also the property management systems. Right. And both of them are, you know, really crucial partners to deploying this technology into large landlords. They've got a property management system and they've already got, for example, fire alarms, which could be connected or boilers, for example, where you could get data out of those boilers. Um, So I'll actually tackle the property management systems first because they are great. They were great channels, but there's a really fine line between channel partners and potential competitors because they're a software company. They could look into the insights. They could aggregate a lot of the data. So um, that was a really fine balance between these property management systems. But ultimately, they've you know they've got a lot of focus on different areas. We managed to sort of carve out a particular area, a particular area around you know real time energy efficiency, um, maintenance, that sort of thing, which they just didn't have the resources or the focus at that point to do to a quality that we we were doing it, you know, the market leading insights. Um, and then also sort of integrating to other, being agnostic. I think that's sort of the key when you're you're smaller, you know, so, okay, if they start to develop something around, you know, the insights that we were developing, well, we would partner with another property management system as well and just be very open about that. Yes. Um, but on the, on the manufacturer side, uh, that's an interesting one because they were all looking to sort of do their own specific uh, insights so around fire alarm detection or protective maintenance around a boiler. Whereas what we're doing was almost the insights a layer above that. Right. And because we took a cross-cutting approach, we were able to say, well, actually, no landlord is just going to go with the valent solution because, yeah, they might be deploying that now, but they might have 
Bosch um, boilers uh, in their stock, or they might go on to Bosch in, in future, so they don't want to be locked in. Um, so what we did with, with that, uh, with, with manufacturers, was take a more cross-cutting approach where the aggregated value of integrating each of those manufacturers outweighed their individual offerings. So we had to play a tango on both sides with the property management right. systems and the manufacturers. And it was, it was really difficult, actually. Um, but we managed to, to, do, to do it. And, and to, you know, we got pilots with and, and scale-ups with property management systems uh, and also with, with the manufacturers. And they almost acted as introducers to certain local authorities and, and um, housing associations as well, um, who said, yeah, we love your specific solution, Valen, and you're the ones that were integrated at the moment, but we also want this other device and this other, so do you have a, you know, an aggregator that you and like a platform that you can introduce us to? So that worked really well. Um, and, you know, it's, it's scaling up, you know, it's the leader in, 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 in the social housing sector, um, and of, yeah, and and sort of growing into the private sector as well. So you know, really proud of what we we did there. Really complex ecosystem, complex solution, and complex product, which is sort of the opposite of what you should do really in a, in a startup. So against all the advice of what you should do, but the team had enough experience, knowledge, expertise, and gr- and crucially, grit and determination. So I was in the officer training corps. I had obviously my family military background. One of my co-founders was a captain in the in the Remi. Um, and another one did the officer training corps as well. And I think what I noticed was that we were always positive, always going through, you know, forward, uh, no matter what sort of challenges we, we faced. Um, but you know, had that grit and determination. Yeah. And I think you need that as a as a startup founder. You're going to have ups and downs even within a day. Like the last yes. week, just in my current business, I've had ups and downs every single day like literally got a customer um literally in the afternoon oh there's a, a bad press release yesterday you know rishi sunak you turned on some uh, minimum energy efficiency standards for for homes which was an important piece not the only piece but an important point yeah. piece for for driving um demand in our in our in our current offering um but, and then we got an uh, you know a, a, a interview with uh, the CEO of a new, of a new you know, massive estate agent, for example, the next day. So it, it's literally you need that grit and determination and emotional um, uh, determination as well, emotional resilience. And I think in the army, you know, when you're you know on Salisbury Plain in November, freezing and sort of laying on thorns and bushes and can't get any sleep, you know that gives you a bit of character for sure. You know, if you can do that, you know, for a week, a week at a time, you know, no sleep, um, you know, sort of startup is sort of, it really prepares you for startup life, I think. Yeah. Um, well, how, yeah. what, what, um, so how do you deal with, I mean, grit and determination aside and, and not all everybody listening will have had a similar background to you or yeah. I, but what do you do to manage those highs and lows? Do you have any sort of tips or tricks that you apply just so you can even that roller coaster ride out a little bit and not let it get too much? Yeah, I think you need to feel it um, during the day. Uh, you can't sort of just compress it and just forget about these things. You need yeah. to sort of live it. Um, but ultimately, it. you always yeah. need to, yeah, you need to recognize it, but always zoom out. Like, what is the worst that can happen? Like, you can, the company fails, you know, so so it fails. It's not going to be the worst. Like, I think usually 90% of the the worry is, 
like completely unfounded basically into yes. when the reality sort of un, uh, you know uh, and usually it's ego like so if you the fear of failing is usually you you fear, you fear what your friends might think you might fear about people you know letting people down um but i i really early on and i think i got this from my dad it's like i don't care what other people think i, I literally don't care like my friends you know i think they're quite proud of me like of what i'm doing my family but if I failed and they're like, oh, Luke, yeah, I told you so or, or whatever, or, you know, yeah, I, I just would be like, oh, I don't care. And then I'll start somewhere else. Or, you know, I, I really don't care about that image and sort of keeping up with the Joneses and yeah. uh, all of that sort of stuff. And well, I think it's you almost just need the judging, be... isn't it? It's almost like people yeah. judging us yeah. of whether or not. And I think, uh, Judge you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that so I, I think that you do care. What other people say, I'm sure that there are, you know, yeah. when people give you advice yeah. and what have you, you yeah. care deeply about them as individuals. Yeah, of course. Um, and I think really what it is, is that we, we just feel like we're going to get judged and we hate to be judged. Yeah. Yeah. And either that manifests yeah, itself yeah. in a way that we're going to prove everybody wrong, right? Which is probably the wrong reason for doing things yeah. anyway, because they're, they're the motivator yes. and we should be <laughs> the motivator. Um, I mean, it's a little bit like that when I joined the core. I mean, at the time, I think my, my dad didn't think I was really mm. the type of person who would fit in that environment. And I said, well, I'll show you, you know, and I didn't just finish it. I finished at the top of mm. training. Um, but that's not the right motivation. Mm. Um, so I, I, I absolutely mm. get, you know, stepping back and feeling in the moment when you get that, you know, that kind of wave of dread that washes over you. Like, oh, my God, what yeah. has just happened? Yeah. I mean, you've got to feel that. And then once you've felt that and processed that, then you're in control of it. If you don't, as you said, comp- if you just stick it to one side and say, I'll deal with that later, it just sits on your mind and ruins your day or your week. Yeah, com- completely agree. And yeah, I suppose, yeah, just, uh, yeah, it's not that I don't care. It's yeah. more about the opinions that people have. If they matter, then I care about that. Yes. But if, if they don't matter, you know, yeah, and, and, you, and that's, you know, what drives you as a person for me it's about making an impact in the world it's not about necessarily making money um and essentially doing what i'm interested in and working what i'm interested in um not necessarily getting social capital from friends for you know making x amount from from this or you know hiring like 50 people you know it's, yeah. i don't get my i'm not driven by that that's not my where my source of power comes from um and i, I think yeah I think one bit of advice would be, you know, where is your your source? What's driving you? And yes. actually be quite honest about that. Um, and if it is you care about other, what other people think, you need, you need to really think about why that is um, and almost try and put that to one side, try and get over that and try and find a source which is more sustainable, I say, and, and, I would say, and, and healthy for you longer term. Yeah. Um, and like you said, if, if it's sort of, oh, I preview wrong, that's maybe like a good starting point, but you need to sort of get over that quite quickly, I would say. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I think it's yeah, also it's also about the people that you surround yourself with. Um, I mean, I've noticed this. You know, mm. certainly, you know, we we we've got grown up families now, and in our friendship group, but there's a there's a mm. core group of us that really we met when the kids were really young, because this is part of you know what happens as you're growing up. You suddenly, as guys, you mm. lead the field of making friends. Then you have families, and your partner then starts leading the way of making friends because it's all around the children. And we are mm. four or five very different mm. individuals. 
but we've got absolutely the same outlook in life. And several of us have our own businesses, several of have tried and failed business, but it's the support network you get from those mm. people. And, and really none of them are flash. You know, it's like we're all quite grounded mm. individuals. And I think that's mm. important. You surround yourself with people like that. We're successful yeah. in our own right, but we like each other's company because we're driven in different ways, but we're vastly yeah. different people. And I think that's a key here, isn't it? It's like surround mm. yourself with people that are going to help you on that journey and stay away from the ones that make you feel, mm. maybe make you feel inferior or make you feel like I'm not doing as well as mm. them. Or every time I talk to them, they're not really interested in what I do. Um, and you know, those are people you just don't need around you. Would you agree with that, Lou? Uh, completely to- toxic people, basically. You just need to ditch those yeah. <laughs> ASAP. Like, just uh, yeah, I'm a very positive person, and when you get a sense when uh, I, I, I think it's when like criticism, like constructive criticism, yeah. and exploring the issue, challenging assumptions. That's really good debate. Uh, but ultimately, if it's just a constant downer. It's like startup life is hard enough and you have to be almost unrealistically optimistic, Yes. uh, almost delusionally optimistic. (laughs) Um, And you you don't need people reinforcing sort of, uh, you know, delusions. You need to have like those robust conversations. But ultimately it's like, right, let's check this idea from every single bit of angle, right? What, What if this happens? Well, I don't think you're right on that. And... But then ultimately, it's like, oh, but that's a good... Right, okay, now we've got to the end piece and let's go forward from there. Um, it's like offering up... If you criticise, offer up solutions or alternatives, that sort of, you know, basic thing. But if, if you, you know, if you're surrounded with people who's just criticising or sapping you or just interested in them, um, yeah, I'll just just you know, try and cut them out, I would say, as much, yeah, as, yeah. As, much as you can, if, if, if you can. But also, um, as, as a founder, I'm sure that um, there are a lot of people in, in your life that would probably tell you how you should do it. I mean, I'm guilty of this, right? Before I, I got into startups, when I was uh, a lot younger, I had a friend who ran a stationary company. Mm-hmm. And the number of times we sat in the pub and told him how he should mm-hmm. run his business. And thankfully, he didn't listen to any of us. Mm-hmm. You know, and he went on to build a very successful <laughs> business for the last 30 odd years. Yeah. But I just think that you know, founders get told by people, whether it's friends, family, or, you know, loved ones telling us you should do this. Did that happen to you? And if it did, how did you deal with it? Because it almost, it frustrates me when it happens. Like, how do you actually cope with that? Um, I don't think I've really got that from friends or family. Um, They more just ask questions about the company and like, it's just more explorative. I think I've mainly got it from... Uh, so we've been in, you know, uh, my original company, you know, went through some accelerators, um, and, th- and actually that's more difficult because they are maybe ex entrepreneurs mm. or, you know, quite, you know, experienced and they're sort of suggesting or telling you to do something in a certain way. And then it's quite hard to then say no, because they're sort of like the expert in, in startup and entrepreneurship, um, but ultimately, ultimately, you're the person in in the on the battlefield. You're yes. fighting, and it's sort of like armchair drivers to to some extent. Yes. You're feeling the pain and going into these conversations, sales conversations, having these uh, battles, and at the coalface. And ultimately, you need to trust your own gut. Uh, a good example would be we were on a, an accelerator, and it's a great accelerator. Um, 
where we were essentially as a pilot for like 25 grand and then a scale up contract of 250k work and that sort of de-risks it for the local authority the housing mm. association to work with someone new so it's a really good um scheme to, to to go through uh but then you had to go through some workshops which, which were great it was actually i learned quite a bit um but there was one on marketing where it it clashed with uh, a customer going out with a customer and actually seeing how they you know uh, you know did repairs and like actually talking to some some people on the ground uh and i felt it was really important that i went but also my my co-founder my technical co-founder um so we couldn't go to this workshop mm. and actually that one of the sort of experienced uh, guys who i really respect was like really pissed off actually that we didn't go um and he and he said, I really suggest that you go to this marketing thing, or at least one of you. And I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll consider it. And I actually, Abe and I, I thought about it. I was like, should I go to this or should we, you know, should I just let, you know, my technical co-founder go by himself? And uh, and in the end, I decided, well, no, I needed to go because it's about a sales process for um, this customer. So I needed to be there to understand yeah. it myself and yeah. also, um, you know, talk customer and almost get key messages to them and the technical co-founder you know he, he could do that but he was he should be focusing on well actually if we're deploying devices you know where do you deploy devices within the home you know does it get the optimal um data back and you know so that he could get an understanding from his perspective so you went so i made you? a decision to say yeah. well actually no we're, we're going to prioritize on the customer yeah, first yeah, yeah. um i i got hauled in with my other co-founder to say you know you're on this accelerator you know you need to go to these sessions and like it was almost like a ticking off and you know ultimately I just was well you know it was my decision um you know and I had to make it sorry um so I apologize you know we'll go to all the other ones and uh you know prioritize those but I, I felt that took priority over this particular session um but but also he was a key person to get on board the the, the person who disagreed with us and actually he did have the wealth the wealth of knowledge as well so when we did have a problem after this i went to him and said well what do you think about this problem and actually he gave us a really good answer so you know sometimes people are wrong sometimes yeah. they're yeah. right um also you need to make the decision about and trust your gut more i found in my previous previous business I sometimes was a bit too open and sort of collaborative and I was the CEO and really I should set and sometimes I went against my gut based on sort of what the majority of people were saying yeah. when actually not everyone's voice on every subject is equal uh, and you know I think sometimes you just need to tr trust your gut even if the majority of people are saying well actually no I think it's the other way if you've had more more data points to access if you've spoken to more people and your gut is saying well, i can't put my finger on it right now but i think we should go i don't think we should do this it. i think we should do this yeah sometimes you just help and, and and do that yeah and i think more often than not i've been my original thoughts and comments which i if i just stuck to were actually proven right rather than um than wrong so um yeah one piece of advice to anyone really is you know, trust your gut and, and learn to hear your gut a lot more because essentially it's your subconscious which has got a load of more data points yes. telling you something and saying this is this is not um, meshing with the reality of what other people are saying, which might have less data points or they might just be going through some 
odd logic which they've imagined whereas you've got you know your subconscious to sort of process all this these conversations from you know the the ceos and the sort of head of set whoever you're speaking to or, or in your customer um and you just need to yeah um trust that yeah it's a common theme isn't it i think a lot of entrepreneurs if they were to write to their their younger self they they give that advice you know to trust your instinct because you're right we are subconsciously processing a lot of experience data that we've lived through or we've processed mm. that we might not even be aware of and we can't mm. quite put our finger on what it is about a situation that feels like uh, the right decision but i know what you mean about uh, accelerators mm. i mean they're great for uh, accessing information mentors uh, introductions mm. they can be they can do exactly what they say and accelerate your business but equally they can be uh, forms of boot camps and boot camps are never really that comfortable mm. um i think part of uh, learning to be an entrepreneur mm. and and i did this in the early days of of my uh, practice of working with early stage startups is i put myself through an accelerator um and i put it myself through it mm. as a consultant so i didn't have a software product so i was uh, knew that i was mm. never going to make a product but i did a six week program mm. and there were moments where we were getting bollockings for not doing the things they're doing and I'm thinking well I'm a grown man here being told off for not doing yeah. something um come on yeah. but look that's the nature of the environment and and it oddly enough it brings you together yeah. as a cohort um and forms some really strong relationships so you know another example of the highs and lows of riding the roller coaster that is a, a startup founder I think for sure what a great conversation, Luke, and thank you for kind of diverging a bit and talking about the mental side of what we have to deal with. I think that's a, a often unaddressed uh, topic on on these um, podcasts. Um, but let's talk about early customers. So, did you sell to Bristol local authority that you know sold the HomeLink first product to them? Were they your first customer, or, or how did you then move on to the next one if that was the case? Well, funnily enough. Um... In, in, my, in, in Homelink, uh, most of my customers were sort of like northeast, initial customers, northeast, Scotland, um, like really far away, actually, London. Um, so, and I really wanted some around the southwest. And I think we got got one early, early adopter around, around the southwest. Um, but yeah, and you know, early days, I was flying up to Edinburgh just like every other week. Um, and it was really tiring, honestly, the, in terms of like face to face sales, you know, this is like pre COVID, mm-hmm. um, not as many sort of, uh, you know, online conversations, obviously, there, there were a bit. Um, and particularly with like, dev- we had hardware, so you had to actually, you know, show them some of these devices and how they install it, you know, so it was really tough. And I, I wish I just sort of concentrated purely on, 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 on you know, the Southwest, because uh, I was just massively tiring just tr- the traveling um and why did so, that happen how yeah, did that come about how... that you had those customers up north so you, you know what F- funny enough um we were doing a bit of consultancy to keep the money coming in whilst we were developing the product and what we found was that was actually completely distracted it was preventing us going all in on the product right. and having a scalable business so what we found was we got our first, we applied to this pre-procurement exercise um, around sort of basically procuring innovation R&D. And that was like 25K and then and then 250K. And we, we got the first one of those. Um, obviously, the, the 250K wasn't guaranteed. 
But at that point, I met this was a, a local authority in Scotland who were really forward thinking. Um, and we decided, well, you know, let's you know, part the consultancy, go all in on this initial customer. And we absolutely nailed it. This was like, um, uh, if, if you sort of uh, military analogy, if you see a breakthrough in the front, then you pull all of your forces right. into, into that breach. breakthrough yeah. to exploit it. We ditched everything else. We pushed through and we gave them an absolute Rolls Royce uh, service. And like some of the other, you know, because it obviously was an open procurement, so there's a number of other competitors. They could not compete with the level of service. We right. wanted it more. Right. Um, and they literally could not say no to us because we had done everything they asked. We had, um, you know, run the pilot just, you know, streaks ahead of everyone else. Um, we wanted that 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 250k, um, and we we ended up getting that that scale up contract, and that broke the the, the sales down because in particularly in so uh, you know, social housing public sector, uh, I think they are more risk averse. So if you, as long as you've got one use case, you can use that, and it really massively de-risks you as a um, as a company, um, particularly as you're sort of a a younger company. And particularly if you've got partnerships with those manufacturers, with those property management systems, you start to, you know, there's other bigger fish in the contract uh, it, it, with a, upstream that they, you know, they, they just feel safer, right? Um, so, yeah, once that was that was broken down, we were able to then, you know, really accelerate our conversations with other other land, social landlords. So that was like a, a, a really good decision for us. You know, part of it, it was quite like yeah um it's quite nervous about it really because we're saying well you know we're cutting off some revenue through the consultancy you know well i've got bills to pay yeah yeah um yeah all or nothing it it paid off it was a risk it was a gamble you know but again he he who dares wins you know and i think a lot of the time just resisting and pulling back it's like going in for like a, a, a tackle in rugby when i played rugby when i was when i was younger uh, you know, I got massively smashed by someone because I just hesitated. That split second hesitation just meant I didn't commit and I just, it actually hurt. I, I got hurt. And then that that point forward, I remember this absolutely massive guy in rugby and I was quite small. I was on the wing um, and I absolutely dumped him. I actually just fully went for him like a missile and completely took him out because I was fully committed and I think that's in, in startup. You you don't have all of the information, but as long as you've got 60, 70, 80%, you've sort of you know, validated, you talk to customers within your team, you've really sort of picked it apart. You then just make a decision and then just commit. Yeah. Um, otherwise, what, just get out of it. Don't start a startup. Yeah, yeah. Just go yeah. back to a normal day job. Yeah. Um, at some point, you just need to create that beachhead and then push your, fo- your forces forward. And even if it's the wrong piece, as long as you're pushing forward, you're creating that momentum. Um, and you might it might not be even the easy. You might be pushing up against a really hard customer um, and it's really hard to scale. But as long as you've got that traction, then you can you can get that next customer. And that yeah. might be an easier, easier route. Well, let's just build on that idea of the analogy there that you're putting about you know, everything into the breach. Um, what I hear and your journey so far is you may well have made that decision at that point because it was the right time to do it. But 
like all these things, you make mm. these sort of probing insertions into other areas. So whether it was consultancy, yeah. whether it was other customers, um, you yeah. do these little probes to find where the opportunities are. But when you're small in the early yeah. days, you've got to back the one that could be the game changer. And and you said there that within yeah. selling to public sector, it was about de-risking it. And de-risking it is one way to do risk it is like somebody else has already bought it. Do you have any other yeah. advice yeah. on how to sell to public sector then, like de-risking the opportunity? To be honest, public sector and private sector, in terms of large, so my current business is selling into mortgage lenders, estate agents, a lot, and, and particularly the, the, the bigger ones, mortgage brokers. Um, and it's the same conversation in terms of you need to find the the people that are innovative forward thinking within that organization create a coalition of change uh, and then they can sort of guide you through their procurement process as well at the right time um so i think that's that that's sort of key getting the right people within organizations who are well connected Uh, they might not even be sort of like the, the top um you know management team but they might be ahead of something or um, you know, a, a, a sort of middle manager, but they're well respected. They know their stuff. They're on the rise, um, and they sort of help you through the procurement process. I would say, in terms of, de- I think de-risking is all make their job easy. So mm-hmm. even if they love your product, you know, what do you need to do to de-risk it? Um, and it could be you need partners, you need um, certain insurances. Um, when we were d- doing that you know, larger contract, two hundred fifty k. In the contract, there was a provision where, you know, if we go bust, they could get access to the code to continue right. to, to so that they don't have a service interruption, basically. Yeah. Um, I think there's two. So it depends what your business is. So we were you know, partly in hardware in my previous business. And that's a slightly different kettle of fish because with software, you know, they can get the code or, you know, they can get a d- different supplier, switch out pretty rapidly. Um, whereas hardware, like you need sort of longer term, they could mm. be deploying these devices over 10 years as part of their replacement program. So they need sort of long term, you know, supply chain assurance and, yeah. uh, you know, cost stability, that sort of thing. So that's where partnering, uh, you know, with those manufacturers really helped. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say, sort of, yeah, partnering with, uh, yeah, like I said, property management systems and, and those manufacturers help to de-risk it for in that particular business. I think in my current business, um, it's de-risking. To, so I think time box pilots and really be clear on the measures of success, I would say. So in my previous business, there were longer pilots, sometimes three months, sometimes six months actually with really large landlords, but it was worth it. And it's because particularly because we were deploying tech into homes as well it just required a bit more time whereas at the moment you know we're doing sort of four i'm you know quite keen to just keep it very time boxed and like what are we actually testing here right you're interested in the product right well what is what will make you move on to the next stage basically what are the success criteria uh and then just go through it quite fast and then if they don't buy afterwards Obviously, keep them on your your radar, keep them engaged, but then move on to the next one. Right, um, and that's the beauty of software. Um, you, you you can do that. In, you know, much more, you know, shorter sales cycles. I would say, um, even at B two B, compared to 
you know, having even an element of 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 hardware, it's you know, you know, you definitely need larger companies to to help you there. One of the things that you just mentioned there, which I love the idea of, is around this collaboration of change. Um, how is, yeah. how does that manifest itself? What can you do to really encourage that to happen? Part of it is uh, that's an interesting question. So part of it is definitely talking to the users, so the customers of your customers. Right, understand um, your customers. So, customers. for example, landlords, tenants. Exactly. So, so tenants, for example, what are they facing? And in social housing, and actually private sector, rented sector is actually, in terms of quality, sometimes worse than uh, sort of social housing. But for example, they were suffering poor conditions around condensation, damp, and mould, mm. poor indoor air quality. Um, their bills were very, you know, r- rising quite steeply. So how can you make their homes more efficient? So by targeting the needs of your customer's customer, um, you start to get interest from other groups, which then put pressure on your customer, particularly, um, uh, you know, a really big regulation is quite a big driver of a lot of change sometimes, particularly on, uh, you know, regulated interests like being a landlord or, um, uh, you know, mortgage lender, for example, uh, regulation is a key driver. So how can you influence that regulation? Um, and we actually, so um, there was two sort of barriers for us. So one was around privacy. So what we did was actually become sort of a thought leader on ethics around deploying smart home monitoring technology um, and actually get tenants on board. What they, you know, do surveys with tenants? What do they feel about these sorts of things? And then that really lowered, again, the risk around us. So we had engaged tenants. They're fine with the monitoring if it helps them do this, that or the other. And these protections are in place. That's one element of it. Uh, the other bit was around uh, indoor air quality and condensation, condensation damp and mould. So again, doing working with the universities around studies around the, how it affects your health. And again, that sort of raises the awareness with tenants, which then puts pressure on landlords um, to show how they're creating a, a really good environment and healthy living space within their um, within their homes. So part of it is looking at, uh, you know, that wider piece within uh, society almost and, and those pressure points. Um, but then within the organisation, you need to get people who, like I said, that are forward thinking. There's sometimes, uh, you know, people just, they're very busy in their day jobs. How can you make it easy for them and make it look good? They don't want to be fired for introducing a new thing, right? Because something went wrong. So risk it for them. And, you know, so we went in very much at the CEO, the the management team level. So one of our first uh, customers, um, you know, it was their entire, we went up to um, uh, Durham and it was an entire management team. I was expecting just to speak to like one or two people, like a head of and a director. It was an entire management team. Um, and that's where, again, we had to do this, particularly like if you're pushing at the boundaries of like innovation and something new, which as a startup, sometimes you need to do to differentiate, then you need a cross-cutting business case um, and that buy-in from, from the top. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say you do need to obviously have a, a senior sponsor, right. uh, and but also those nodes within the organisation which introduce you to these these people and get things, the doers, the get get things done, 
um, and, and sort of on the rise within their organization and don't mind maybe taking risks, but calculated risks. Yes. So don't sort of, yes. you know, uh, put, put them out on the limb <laughs> too much. You know, you really sort of need to nurture those relationships and make them look good. Um, so in the pilot, you know, we've got great engagement from X and then it makes the person who sponsored you, look, these, this pilot's yes. working really great um, and, and sort of make them look good. Reinforce the, uh, their, their decision to, to exactly. work with you in the first place. That's great uh, insight, exactly. Luke. Um, I often ask founders, you know, what they would do differently next time because you're already on the next time because you've had a success with Homelink. You're now building yeah. PropFlow. What is it about the experience previously that you have applied to this new business that you've, you're building today? Um, anything that, that you yeah, would have said so that many... don't do? Anything that perhaps you would do differently or anything you wouldn't do this time around? Yeah. There's a load of sort of tactical things that I've done differently in terms of different systems, processes, um, uh skills within the team part of it was sort of trusting so before i you know just hired not hired loads of people but co-founders and then early employees um when actually we maybe maybe didn't need as many um right so just sort of trusting that you can do some of the stuff when i you know even though i hadn't done it before i actually learned quite quickly um so you know sort of trusting your own skill set to some extent um I, i think you know I have been targeting more local companies as well, so I don't have to travel as much because I right. do think face-to-face is really important. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think for me, it's knowing when to pivot as well. So we um, started off PropFlow, more B2C. So we had this mm-hmm. digital hub for the home. Uh, we've now in, even integrated my previous business. So, so, so you've got smart home technology in there as well. Um, but you know, essentially reminders, all your documents in one place, uh, you know, helping you to be more sustainable. So particularly like end-to-end retrofit tools, for example, to, you know, help make your uh, uh, home more energy efficient, monitoring the impact of that. So we've got like a really great amount of technology. And then we launched it as a B2C. But then Liz Trust launched a mini budget. And then the property, so we're targeting the property transactions, particularly. Right. And then that sort of started to go downhill, right? Because the mortgage interest rates rise. So I then reviewed that and wasn't afraid to pivot quite fast to a B2B model, which was actually my, my strength anyway, and really hone in on uh, decarbonize. So we had a retrofit tool and lenders need to decarbonize. They've got their own decarbonization targets. They're feeling the pain at the moment. So we pivoted to basically what we had as an engagement tool for them that their customers can use. And then we expanded slightly to have some more audit tools for their own portfolio. Um, so I, you know, I wasn't afraid to make that decision. Again, talk to the market, and then as soon as you've got them enough information, pivot your. We pivoted the business model. So, um, whereas I think in Homelink we ne- didn't necessarily pivot as fast, mm-hmm. um, and I think that sort of you know hindered us later on. Uh, but and again, it was just f- through sheer force and just you know determination and grit that we then sort of overcame, we made it hard for ourselves, basically. Um, but, and, and, it was, and it was a lot of work to overcome. We just had to put more effort in. Whereas here, it's, uh, I don't want to say less effort. There's always effort to do stuff in, in startups. But I found that I've managed to do more with less, essentially, right. um, by just really being quite focused, uh, knowing when to 
when I know, you know, I think part of it is I, I just know my own just gut now. You know, I, I can trust. I, I, know, I trust, trust my instincts. own decisions a lot yes. more. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Um, I think in terms of yeah, and just customer, just make sure that you focus down on a customer. Um, whereas before, again, when HomeLink, you know, who were we initially targeting? It was a bit sporadic in the in the beginning, and then we started to really focus down. Whereas in PropFlow, I'm just, I was quite certain about what we were doing. Um, so yeah, I think as long as you've got the customer, you can always uh, change your business around them. Right. Uh, and you've got you you know you've started a relationship, you, you you're talking to them, you've got their interest. If your product's not quite fitting, you can always change the product, but it's always about understanding that customer. Um, yeah, so I, I suppose I haven't really said what I wouldn't do. What wouldn't I do? Um, I would say, you know, just getting local, more local customers. But again, in HomeLink, you had to go where your customer is. Where, where right? the opportunity um, was, yeah. And if that was sort of the, where the opportunity was and, and exploit that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I suppose, you know, maybe sort of tailoring. I, 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 I have used CRM a lot more in my right. new business, to be right. fair. Uh, previously, it was much more around my own network, which was great. And you still need your own network. But I think it's having a more robust sales system. Um, we used HubSpot. We um, I, I also used Trello as well, sort of to track sort of sales pipeline as well. Um, and yeah, I, I think having a more robust sales infrastructure, I've managed to do basically the selling in this current, current business. And right. I mean, the... you, you've been the founder-led seller in, in both businesses, haven't you? Exactly. Right. And you don't have much of a team, sales team behind you. Exactly. And I think a key thing there is actually, and again, I think in the previous business, we didn't do channels as, as much. Whereas in this business, you know, we're partnering with, um, and we've had to. So, for example, with the state agency, there's lots of smaller state agents. So you need to partner with those networks. Right. Um, so mortgage networks and uh, in order to sort of get, get your tools out there. Uh, whereas I think with, uh, Homelink, I, we didn't do that as much or as early on enough. Um, yeah, and I think yeah, just steering away from hardware. I think hardware is great, but you need a lot of venture capital to sort of develop right. that. Yeah, to build um, that. and it's a and long I've cycle. managed to keep. Yeah, it's a long cycle. So I've I've, I've kept bootstrapped, um, and I think that's given us more flexibility to make decisions which are in the interest of the business rather than the VCs. Um, when I say bootstrap, lightly funded, we've got an angel, sort of early, some early stage investors. But I think keep control for as long as possible, I would say, uh, in terms of the founders, um, because you're able to make those decisions for the business. And, you know, because VCs want exits of like, you know, 100 yeah. billion, basically, don't they? Yes, Whereas, they do. You know, yeah. 100 million, that's great, you know, for yeah. you know, or 20 million, even, you know, that's, that's, that's a great exit, right? Um, whereas it won't be enough for some, some VCs. So, um, yeah, keep, keep small, keep agile. Um, I've also conserved cash as well. So be, be very, you know, cash is king. Um, conserve your cash, but don't be afraid to invest that cash when you need it. When you've committed to that bridgehead and you're seeing right. that traction, don't be afraid to spend at that point. But before that point, yeah, be be very sort of uh, cash con conscious and don't spend. 
Great, great advice. Hopefully Luke. that's answered your question. Phil. Yeah, it has. <laughs> and, and I think we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, I think a lot of people will find this um, inspiring. Um, I have a bit of a tradition uh, on Behind Startup Lines. I think you'll like this, where I ask you a couple of sort of military-related questions just to wrap up the conversation. Okay. Um, so I've got a couple for you if you're ready to, to take those now. Are you game? Okay. Okay. Right. It's been a while since I've been in the military, but I'll. I'll, I'll uh, They're make business sure I'll, related I'll military remember. twist. Um, it's not. Uh, I'm not okay. going to test you on your field manual, so you're all right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, look, the first question really is around intelligence gathering. Um, what do you yeah. employ to stay informed about emerging technologies and market opportunities when you think about intelligence gathering? What do you use to stay informed? Uh, so. LinkedIn is very useful. And I think what I do is follow competitors and also the innovative people within certain customers and what they're talking about. Right. Um, so I do, I do think LinkedIn is, is quite powerful. Uh, it's a very powerful tool, actually. Um, but I think actually going to certain conferences. Um, I've also, I'm also uh, on the, um, uh, you know, I t- told you about this fellowship I was on. I'm now on the panel which selects new fellows and I'm on the tech for all panel. And that's really great because um, I get all the all of these applications, about, you know, not necessarily businesses or anything I'm going to go into, but it's like really eye-opening about what tech is doing, right. like you know AI for helping to prevent homelessness and um, you know th- and um, you know helping disability that sort of thing. And it's just like right, I didn't know they were developing this sort of stuff and actually having a broader view of technology in general i think just keeping curious right um not just sort of head down and um in your own little world for sure um and i think you do tend to gravitate as a founder uh if you're you know you're working on new stuff like ai you tend to gravitate towards groups of people that are talking about the same thing um and i think there's actually a risk there so you don't want to get too absorbed in the bubble of new technology and not forget, uh, you know, the, the customer's pain points. And like I said in my previous business, we were we had the operating system, but they hadn't got the devices yet. Right. <laughs> so like we were like two steps ahead. So um, I think there's a balance between, in terms of that intelligence gathering. It's about validation and then right. understanding the reality on the ground, right? So you don't want to. Uh, what, what's the, um, the the famous dodgy dossier of intelligence from you know you just you want to validate some of that intelligence that's and, right you know are people actually applying that technology are they actually interested in that technology or are they just sort of talking about it because it's a new thing right um, you're not so referring that, to sort of you're not referring to so, Operation but, Mincemeat are you where the, the with the false information <laughs> that was uh, have you seen that film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, did you know that they've now created oh, that... a uh, musical for Operation Mincemeat, which is which is an amazing oh, gosh, no. show, amazing show. It's an Edinburgh Fringe Festival show. I highly recommend oh, anyone goes and sees it. It's the funniest thing you've ever seen. How do you turn a wartime uh, operation into a musical? Go see Operation Mincemeat. You'll love it. <laughs> um, Luke, this is that. super helpful. Last um, question for you. Yeah. Um, so this one is is a bit more generic. Um, when you think about, and you've come from a military background, you've got military family, you've experienced military life. Mm. Um, which historical mm. military leaders' strategy or tactics do you admire most, and do you in, do you draw inspiration from? Yeah. So I actually 
I've been in quite so I've done a lot of martial arts. So I've read a lot of Chinese and Japanese literature. Sun Tzu, Miyamati uh, Musashi's um, Book of Five Rings, mm-hmm. uh, and it, you know, that is obviously sort of a core text, really, for not just business but also the military, right? So, um, but in terms of military leaders, obviously there's uh, there's also too much to choose from. I, I'd say because I love like strategy games as mm. well, and there's always like. Um, you know, Napoleons and like the Wellingtons of this world. I would say just because I'm a Winston Churchill fellow, and I know he's not like a general or anything like that, but I'd say Winston Churchill would probably have to sort of, you know, rank up there in terms of being that personality to, it's because it's always about motivation and, you know, even if it's a losing battle coming through and again, grit and determination, yes. right? And having that vision to to sort of see the end of something and, um, yeah, I think Winston Churchill was quite quite an inspiration, I would say. Um, yeah, and, and to be honest, even um, some of the generals in Ukraine now, I mean, that's an inspiration, isn't it? Yeah, so, it is. um, you know, have, fighting off David versus Goliath, being innovative, adapting constantly, think of new ways to challenge your opponent. Um, so I don't, I don't know if there's sort of like one specific general, but, you know, uh, but you know, Zelensky, Zelensky is that that sort of wartime leader, yes. very inspirational um, in terms of gather. And again, coalition. So gathering your allies, yes. right? Keeping them engaged, making sure that it's their fight, not just your fight. Um, so that, 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 that's really inspiring as well. So. Yeah, perfect example. Zelensky being thrown into a role that he probably never envisaged having to to undertake. And it's just stepping up yeah. to the mark in, in a way that's inspiring for many of us. But you're right, coalition yeah. and keeping, because now I think it gets harder, yeah. as this has been raging for the time it yeah. has, to keep that together. And already we're starting to see some of the cracks uh, appearing. Um, Luke, super interesting. We could talk all day about this stuff. Um, and I think you know, when we get a chance yeah. to get together, we should, <laughs> we should explore it further. Um, tell our listeners about yeah. how they can learn more about PropFlow. And, and what does PropFlow... Prop flow need right now for the next phase of its growth that, that others might be able to help you with? Yeah, so we're mainly sort of targeting uh, mortgage lenders, mortgage brokers, estate agents about and helping particularly uh, their customers retrofit their properties. So, you know, 20% of our carbon emissions come from uh, residential property. Um, and, you know, we're not going to meet our, our targets, but also critically. So talking about the war, war in Ukraine, our energy security is ingra- you know, massively ingrained with net zero. If we can become more energy efficient in our homes, the less we're dependent on dictators like Russia, um, which I found, that's why I found the sort of the U-turn by uh, the Conservatives recently a bit strange, um, because it's not about climate. It's about our energy security and our sovereignty. Right. And you know, we import 117 billion of energy, right? So how can we get people to retrofit their homes? Where... Um, you know, going to be sending out our tools, particularly our retrofit tool, which is a one-stop shop. So it shows you the business case, what value can it add to your home, uh, what uh, recommendations are there, and then direct quotes from national accredited suppliers. Um, so we're going to be sending that out to uh, quite a large estate agent recently, um, mortgage lenders. So really, it's um, creates more awareness. So if you're not in a mortgage lender, if you're in a mortgage lender, you know, get in contact or broker right. or, or a state agent, get in contact. You can use our tool um, to help you know your customers become more sustainable. If you're not anything to do with that, you're just a normal homeowner. Um, you know, just you know, 
look into some of the other benefits of making your home more energy efficient. Um, it's not just about saving money on your energy bills, it can affect the value of your home, defend mm -hmm. the value of your home, mm -hmm. make your home more uh, comfortable, uh, increase the air quality, give you more financial security. Um, so, and, and mortgage lenders are taking this into account now when they're, they're lending on, 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 on mortgages. So um, I would say, you know, as a very minimum, get up to, to speed about how making your home more energy efficient isn't just about saving money on your energy bills. It's also, I think it's almost patriotic, you know, you're, we're making our, you know, more, uh, our country more sovereign. Um, you know, we're not dependent on others for oil. Um, you know, we're making the world safer, in, in fact, because, you know, we don't need to intervene in, in you know, conflicts around fossil fuels anymore, right? So, um, yeah, Great. look up around energy efficiency. What can you do, even if it's small things, to make your home more energy efficient and use less energy, get off gas? Um, yeah. That's a great call. Thank you very much, Luke. And how do yeah. people find out more about uh, you and about uh, the business as well? Where do they go? Yeah, so website, um, propflow.co.uk, uh, or, or LinkedIn. Um, or, uh, so yeah, propflow. Um, so yeah, just, just have a look on that. Uh, again, it's sort of more B2B focused, but uh, you know, happy to sort of talk to people if they are interested in trying out our, our uh, it's called Green Vow, our retrofit tool, um, just as a sort of individual, happy to sort of send that to people, uh, but mainly that's accessible via your lender. Um, yeah. Brilliant, Luke. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, wishing you all the best with PropFlow and I you know, look forward to seeing how it grows from here. So thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks, Phil. Really appreciate it. And it's been cathartic. <laughs> Great. Take care. We'll speak again soon, Luke. Bye for now. Brilliant. Thanks. What a great conversation that was with Luke. I loved his idea of better engaging customers through establishing a collaboration of change. I also enjoyed diving deeper into the emotional side of being a founder and learning how to deal with the daily ups and downs that are all too common in our chosen profession. If you like what you heard, please rate the episode and share it with someone you know who would benefit from these pearls of founder wisdom. Until next time, keep building, keep innovating, and let's keep the conversation going. This is Phil Guest from Behind Startup Line signing off. Over and out. <laughs>